Welcome to the fourth episode of the Go Get Outside podcast. I am your host, Jason Milligan, coming to you yet again from inside my girlfriend's closet because apparently I haven't found a better place to record these yet. I also have a nasty, scruffy beard right now because instead of shaving, I am recording this because you are more important. Today, we have Southern California's own Chuck Norris, Scott Sweeney. Scott Sweeney is a 67-year-old badass. He's one of those guys that's tried everything from cave diving to climbing to canyoneering to kayaking to whitewater to everything. He's done a little bit of it all. But what he's most well-known for these days is being the Death Valley Canyoneering guy. He goes into Death Valley into these unexplored, insufferable-looking canyons, and he descends them with his team for the first time and documents them for the rest of us. And he's been doing it since he was way young and too dumb to know better. So you may have wondered why I called him the Chuck Norris of Southern California. So everybody probably remembers that really popular thread of memes going around years ago with Chuck Norris where people would make jokes about the impossible things Chuck Norris could do. Well, Scott Sweeney is one of those guys. Like I said, he's 67, buff, and more capable than I'll ever be. And because of that, people have made Scott Sweeney jokes in the style of Chuck Norris. I'll give you a small taste of them right now. Scott Sweeney's fellow hikers worry about rattlesnakes because they know biting Scott Sweeney would be fatal for the rattlesnake. Scott Sweeney has no need for a compass. The Earth's magnetic core follows him. So Scott and I met at Corriganville Park in Simi Valley back in June, and he and I sat down for a bit and discussed his life and how he got into all these different activities that he's done and the many, many ways he almost killed himself but has persevered. So without wasting any more time, let's get to an interview that I am calling The 99 Lives of Scott Swain. been pretty much probably my entire life just living my life for adventure and exploration things like that I've always been one of the primary interests I've always had just things I said I'm going where nobody is so I just love the idea of just getting in the middle of nowhere where the the more isolated the more unexplored uh, to me that's the most exciting places as you can go especially in the U.S. in a very crowded place that you can there are actually spots left that you can go that Almost no one's been there, or very few. Do you, do you think that's going to change? Oh, it's changing. It's changing right now. Just like canyoneering, there was nobody in canyons, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And now they're... Yeah, even like four or five years ago, there weren't that many. It yeah. didn't seem out here. And then now there are, there are very many. Yeah, because I was, I was in Utah. I was a climber from like 65. I was climbing all through Virginia and West Virginia and a lot of rock outcroppings and... I went to Utah for a climbing trip in 1972, went to Moab, and then there's no such term as canyoneering. 
but there were these canyons there, and we had the, we were doing all the towers and the rock roots, and we said let's let's go down the let's get our ropes. So we have the ropes, we knew how to build anchors, and we knew how to repel and descend. So we just descended down all these canyons, having no idea that canyoneering would be a sport one day. We were just like rock climbers exploring. Didn't bother to document anything. We just going through all the canyons. It, it's kind of interesting how many different outdoor activities have come from mountaineering. Like it yeah. started as mountaineering, yeah. and then it's branched into all these different types of climbing. And then even things like canyoneering, yeah. I would consider an offshoot of climbing. Slacklining is an offshoot of climbing. Yeah. All these different sports have come out of this one. Yeah. Technical, it's like rope work, any kind of or caving. Right. Actually, caving's been around a long time, too. There are a lot of caves that you could not get in a cave without a rope. And you had to not only repel, but you had to actually ascend. But that's why I got into climbing, because I was a caver first. But they're all kind of connected. Once you have, well, to get into a vertical world, you've got to have ropes and you know, hardware and equipment and, know, and have ex- expertise and knowledge on how to keep them getting killed. <laughs> and you've done a little bit of everything, right? You've, you've been a caver, a climber, a canyoneer, a, a cave diver. Yeah, which... I was cave diving back in 72, all through these underwater caves throughout Florida. And then after that, I've done a lot of trips around the world, diving trips, and including the Yucatan, diving through all the cenotes down there. The vertical pit caving uh, all around uh, tag country is Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. There are these immense pits, and a lot of the pits there, we like one of them, Ellison Cave. It's like 580-foot drop, and the only way to come back out is you got to send back up the rope. So there's all kinds of caving adventures that really got me very excited that because only a few people would ever go in those kind of pits. A lot of people consider cave diving the most dangerous sport you can participate in. Do you feel that way, or do you think that's well, exaggerated? Well, at that time, there were unbelievable numbers of participants, percentage-wise, were dying. Now it's become uh, much more uh, controlled. Nearly all the caves in Florida now are controlled, and you have to have the cave diving certification. But back in those days, in 72, you didn't have to have air card certification to go scuba diving. Anybody could go and buy a tank and fill up air and go diving. Now you can't fill a tank unless you have a C card, a certification card that you've gone through a course. The same thing with cave diving. Uh, Now all the caves, you have to have cave diving certification with all kind of redundant systems and all kinds of emergency uh, stuff that you've been trained in. Back in the earlier days, many people had no idea how easy it is to die in an underwater cave. Were you certified then? Oh, no. Are you certified now? Oh, yeah, I got certified. But at the time... <laughs> Was I, it because they wouldn't let you fill up your tank? I actually had uh, several problems, issues diving, uh, that I had some close calls. And I said, I really need to know a lot more about physics, gas laws, you know, dive tables, you know, decompression sickness, you know, the bends. You can die in embolism. You can just hold your breath and come up on scuba tank and burst your lungs in 10 feet of water. There's just things that you need to really know. Yeah, the nice thing about when you get scuba certified is they spend several hours explaining all the ways you can kill yourself underwater that you weren't aware of. <laughs> that, yeah, that you and I, I had some close calls doing things. Uh, I did many sports. I did my first climbing, rock climbing, was complete lead, a trad lead. This was way before cams. And I was just leading right off the bat uh, using a climbing rope as an anchor. Not a climbing rope, a, a boat anchor off my boat. That was my climbing <laughs> rope. And I just bought some nuts and some hardware, and, and I just started uh, climbing and leading. 
my first time. Never had top roped or nothing. Never been around a climber. I just said, I'm going to learn how to do this and just go up a 900-foot rock wall in uh, West Virginia, which is the biggest top rock in West Virginia. <laughs> and, and how did that turn out? It went fine. I, I actually was able to put all the pieces in. The guy was explaining how to belay me. I said, you know, you pull back on this stitch plate, you pull back on this thing if I fall, and hopefully it's going to have you anchored in properly. But uh, luckily, uh, it was no problem. Everything worked out good. So so let's go back <clears throat> all the way to the beginning. So so you're 67 now, right? Yeah, 67. And you've done a whole hell of a lot of stuff. Yeah, many sports. <laughs> so So how did you get into all of that stuff. Like, what was the first outdoor thing that you can really think about that you did that kind of led you into all this other stuff? Well, even as a kid, I always knew exploration and wild places just had this Im- immense appeal. Uh, even when I was a kid, I was in the woods. The further I got away from everything in the middle of nowhere, uh, it was always just very exciting when I'd go into deep forest and national forest in the East Coast. Uh, to me, that was just exciting. And then once I saw various pictures and books on you know climbing and caving and kayaking and all these sports I just said wow that's something I've I've just got to do that and I even knew when I was a kid I said you know people like Christopher Columbus and all the explorers I said this is who I would have been I said I can't imagine looking at the horizon not knowing what's on the other side I would have to be one of the ones that would have to go look so I just knew I was just had an explorer personality from an earliest age and adventurous excitement. I was always climbing towers and trees and you know, antennas and stuff as a kid. And where, where did you grow up? I was born in Michigan where my father was from but uh, we moved around Memphis, Tennessee and then when I was 12 I was in Virginia and West Virginia and Massachusetts and when I was in Virginia and West Virginia it's prime cave country. Plus there's a lot of good rock climbing walls there now. At that time there was very people doing any of this stuff. But the cave country uh, was what initially got me started. When I was like 16, I was doing a lot of caves for the first time. And after that, it just been branching out ever since. So did you come across caves and go into them yourself with your friends? Or did you know someone who was familiar with the caves? I had no idea anything about cavers. I just (laughs) saw a cave and I said, I'm going in that cave. I had no idea what I was doing. And I didn't have ropes at first and did unbelievably scary down climbs and all kinds of spooky stuff that I was doing that I easily could have been killed. And some of the caves were flooded. Uh, We were swimming in these things and we'd do sumps. You'd hold your breath and go under an air pocket under and come up on the other side. But some of the caves, uh, they would flash flood during heavy rains. These sinkholes would fill up. So there were just many things that I didn't know what I was doing that I finally realized that I need to learn more. So I started picking up some reading material on how I could do this more safely without getting killed in these caves. So you, so you had dumb teenager luck. Is that what, was it. Is what I, I could say that about <laughs> many sports. I definitely um, have been lucky in my life. Many things that I have done that I should have been killed in, I, I just lucked out. And I've known quite a few people that have died in the various sports that I've been in over the last 50 years. So. Have you ever had to deal with that on a trip that you were on where something terrible happened to somebody who was with you? Uh, not with me, but I've had bad things happen to me, but you know, that I was able to survive. Many close calls that I've had in many sports, and including cave diving and diving and many other accidents. I've broken bones and many falls, all kinds of things have happened to me that I'm lucky that I'm actually here 
So you were telling me that when we were walking out to, to start this interview, you were telling me you've busted your eardrum seven times. Yes. You didn't learn the first six times. Uh, well, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of these sports, like just like you know what cliff jumping is. Right. Uh, I was kept getting higher and higher, but there's a lot of compression, and if you don't hit perfectly in the water, and if you have your mouth open and water goes bl blasting into your mouth, it just blew my eardrum out right out. The first time I actually burst my eardrum was water skiing. I just been started diving and bought a boat and burst my eardrum, and I went to the emergency room, and the guy said, "Well, for the next six, eight weeks, you're not going to be in the water until the eardrum heals." And he said, "You got to have another sport." So I said, Shh. "I can't believe now I." I got a new boat and I'm diving and everything and now I can't even get in the water. So I went out that day and bought a motorcycle. So, <laughs> so, so to an even less safe activity. Is, yeah. Was... <laughs> so I bought the motorcycle. The guy said, pick it up after work. So I picked it up. My pregnant wife, I said, I picked her up after work. I said, let's go to the beach. I had six miles on the bike and a guy hit his head on and crushed my leg. And broke all the bones in my leg and put me in I could almost not even walk for a year I'm go back to the emergency room the same emergency room doctor the next night he says you again I said you told me to get a different sport two days in a row but that pretty much wiped me out for a while there later so, so broken legs and broken eardrum at the same time within within, within, two, within, within 24 a very short hours <laughs> two two trips to the emergency room so are you personal friends with that doctor now how many times have you no been but he he was uh, quite shocked to hear I'm back the next night did you ever keep with the motorcycle, or was that enough? Oh yeah, for you? I've had. I still have. I have four motorcycles now, and I've had many motorcycle crashes. I, I raced motocross for a while, but it was very expensive. I couldn't really afford to, unless you're on a team-sponsored team. I was constantly crashing the bike and breaking parts. So I just got out of out of that. Even I still have the bike. I still have three dirt bikes and a road bike now. You did a bit of free diving as well, right? Yeah, I was a big spear, spear fisherman. I, I was uh, could dive like 70 feet down to the bottom and hold my breath up to two minutes. So I was a spear fisherman and a free diver. Even though I was scuba, I'd much rather spe spear fish without tanks. When were, where were you doing that? Uh, well, I started out in West Virginia. We were diving. There were tons of fish around the wrecks back in the early 70s. And then when I was in Florida, I did quite a, quite a bit. I was doing a lot, many diving trips to the islands in the Caribbean, you know, Bahamas, all the way down to the Virgin Islands and everywhere else. I've heard a story, and you can tell me whether this is true yeah. about you, where you were free diving and you came across some scuba divers at some point, and you like tap them on the shoulder and ask and ask for a puff of air. Is that a true story? Well, actually, that was a cave in Florida. There's a swimming hole at the top of the platform. It's a deep sinkhole pit. It's about 50 feet deep, and it goes down into a shaft, about 35 feet in it, and goes into a diving bell. They, they have a diving bell they've built. Going down about 35 feet, you go in another 30, 40 feet in, and they've got an upside-down bell with a compressor blowing air down in there. And they put a line down with a little light bulb in it. So divers can come up in, when they're giving classes. The divers can come up and put their head in there and take their mask off and talk because when you're underwater you can't communicate and there's a little light in there. All these swimmers were above and I just had my snorkel and fins and I went down and I could see that diving bell way back in there and I said I'm going to make it to that diving bell holding my breath. So I got into the diving bell and I'm breathing the air and it's like 150 foot visibility in these caves, in these springs. And down about 70, 80 feet down, I could see these divers down there, a group of divers down there about 70, 80 feet, back in the cave with my light. I had a diving light with me. So I said, I'm going to 
hold my breath here and dive down. So I dive down to these guys, like 70, 80 feet down, and I do, I'm in a cave with just mass snorkeling fins on and a light. And these guys turn around and they see this guy snorkeling down to them, and they're like shocked. <laughs> And I tapped on the guy and picked up his octopus regulator. I said, do you mind if I get a breath of air? You know, he could tell I needed a breath of air. So he gave me a breath of air off, the, off his uh, tank. And then I just went back up to the diving bell. But then when I finally went back into the entrance, they thought I had drowned. The swimmers had seen this guy go down mass snorkeling fins and he hadn't come up for like five or 10 minutes. So they had a search and rescue there. They, were, they thought it was gonna be some kind of body recovery that I had drowned. They had no idea that I was down there in that diving bell. You shouldn't have told them. You should have just said, no, I've been yeah, practicing my holding my breath. I'm really good at it. <laughs> so just stuff like that. It was just a kind of fun thing to do and unusual. So have you traveled around a lot as well? Do you, Have you been to a lot of places doing diving and caving and other types of things? Yeah, I've been all over uh, many, many places around the world uh, diving, you know, Hawaii and all through the Caribbean. And I've been out in Borneo, diving some of the best places off Borneo and many other places like that. Any, anywhere stand out in your mind? Uh, well, Borneo has an island called Sipadan. And uh, Jacques Cousteau called it one of the jewels of diving in the world when he visited. And you're on this island and you step off the beach and it's 6,000 feet deep. So it drops like 2,000 feet just straight down, right off the beach. You can walk in the water and you can, as soon as you get in the water, you're looking down like it's a 2,000 foot vertical wall straight down. So that's an amazing place. And uh, you know, 100 foot visibility water and amazing fish. There's, there's no fishing, spear fishing or any kind of fishing allowed around there. So there's incredible marine life. When you were spear fishing, what would you tend to fish for? Lots of grouper and uh, big snappers and uh, cobia, many, many other type of big fish. Uh, a lot of times I could spear a lot of fish, like 60, 70 pound fish. But uh, I did a lot of this solo. I did a lot of night diving. I had a Zodiac boat. I'd go out in the open ocean and I would just go down, tethered to my, with a line, with a grappling hook. To my and there's heavy current in Florida because of the Gulf Stream. I could just hook it to the bottom, and I would spear at night out there. Oh, so you just tether yourself to your boat, so that's yeah. I would go down with the grappling hook, and then the current is moving me, and I would just wait for the fish. And then if I wanted to stop, I would just hook the grappling hook on the bottom on a rock, and then spear. But I've had several incidents where I got wrapped up. The fish would wrap around you. If you spear them like a 60-pound fish, all of a sudden you start spinning around, and all of a sudden you're tangled in all your line. And you're trying to keep your regulator in your mouth, and many things can happen. You know, there have been various incidents of spear fishermen, you know, dying. You know, they get hooked to a, a huge fish, and the fish takes off with them. So, are you a great fish chef? You make great fish meals. Oh uh, yeah, I had tons of fish to eat. I was, I always could come back with fillet out all the fish, and had a huge freezer full of fish meat and lobster. I did a lot of lobstering too. You've done a fair amount of alpine climbing and mountaineering as well, right? Uh, yeah, I've been uh, always into big mountains. Uh, I was in Peru um, back in 2010. We climbed like 10, uh, 6,000 meter peaks down there. You know, just uh, me and my partner, just the two of us. We weren't guided. We just going up all the peaks. And uh, 2013, we were over in the Pamirs in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, they were doing. Uh, there were five 7,000 meter peaks in the Soviet Union, in these various countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And we went to climb three of those 7,000-meter peaks. There's only one 6,000-meter peak in North America, in Denali. But we're doing 7,000-meter peaks. They're like over 23,000 feet, up to like 26,000 feet. 
So what's that like climbing those peaks? Is it enjoyable? Is it miserable? Is it a little bit of both? Well, it's very exciting that you're up in these uh, incredible alpine scenery, but uh, you know you definitely have to acclimate your body. You know, once you've acclimated, first of all, you need to be fit. Then on top of that, you need to acclimate over a period of time. Even the best climbers in the world have to go through this acclimatization phase, and usually it takes a matter of sometimes ten to three weeks just to get your body where it can handle 23, 24,000 foot peaks. And uh, I actually got sick. I was in a camp it's higher than Denali, waiting to go for the summit, and I got sick. And there's a Soviet and a Russian doctor there. He said, you have to go down right now. He says, you'll be dead up here in 24 hours if you don't get down. So what? I had to evacuate mm-hmm. off the mountain. Were you coughing up blood and things like that? Yeah, I had bad? all kinds of problems. And he just said, this, you just got to get down. You're, you're 20,000 feet. We've been up there for like two weeks. And he says, you can't. You just got to get down. So that kind of ended that particular trip. Have you had to use supplemental oxygen on any of these? No, uh, I would probably never use oxygen. Uh, you know, I would uh, I would continue just to tr- attempt to do the peaks and acclimatize my body. So you're a purist is what you're saying? Yeah, I just think the thing on Everest with all the guys, they have the Sherpa kicking the steps, short pulling you up on a rope, you know, doing everything for you. To me, that's not that's not really adventure. You just you're paying your way up to have someone haul you up a mountain. That's just not but I'm a, I would never do those type of trips. If I can't do it myself, and uh, there's no way I'm going to carry, you know, oxygen bottles myself. Usually, yeah, you're paying yeah, eighty-five thousand. They are not light. Oh yeah, no. all that stuff you got to do, uh, you know, is well, most of those mountains becoming rich man mountains. You know, you if you you're going to pay eighty-five thousand dollars for a, a team to get you up something, which is what people do on Everest. That's just not adventure to me. I would like to climb Everest, but I'd like to do it in, like you said, the purest way the alpine ascent where you just take off on yourself with your team and and just get yourself up the mountain which is kind of difficult to do these days right because they want you to use well what they have in place you correct yeah all the mountains uh i just did a mountain uh, in mount kennebalu the highest point in southeast asia and it's they just had an earthquake that killed like 16 climbers Mm -hmm. they're basically hikers they require you and and some of these other places around the world now require you have you hire the local portisan guides like kilimanjaro places like that you have to have this entourage of locals that you have to pay to go with you so they're very restrictive many places around the world now and there's so many tourists doing this and so many well-funded climbers around the world they the dirtbaggers are out you can't go dirtbagging and just doing your own thing anymore. Even if you didn't go up with one of these guide groups on Everest, the entry fee is really steep, oh, right? Oh, they're ridiculous. All the uh, like like 8,000-meter peaks. I've had two friends that have done 8,000-meter uh, peaks, not Everest, but other 8,000-meter 8, peaks, and they p- both paid over $14,000 just to do an 8,000-meter peak. In Asia, where we were doing 7,000-meter peaks, all the different countries over there have fees, and you pay a 7,000 meter peak fee just to get a permit. You have to have the permits on all these mountains now. What were those fees for there? Well, it's around a thousand bucks, but it depends on where you are and which peak, the well-known peaks. These five 7,000 meter peaks in the Soviet Union days were called the Snow Leopard Peaks, and they're more expensive because they're the ones that are very popular and there's tons of outfitters because people want to do these five 7,000 meter peaks. But right next to us are 22,000 foot peaks that no one ever even climbs that you almost have to have no fee at all. But some countries you do have to pay, like China, you're gonna pay to be on a mountain. And uh, other countries, Bhutan, 
next to Nepal, uh, you got to pay these ridiculously high fees. You have to pay $200 a day just to be in the country. It's many, many things. That, unless you're a well-to-do person, you just can't almost do mountaineering in some of the, some of the places in the world. Where we were is one of the cheapest places. You can still do 7,000-meter peaks. So anyway, uh, I would do a lot more of it, but the expense and stuff like that is, is quite high. Would you ever consider guiding people up these mountains? Well, actually, I have done guiding before. When I was in Florida, I was putting trips together, guiding people in, in Tennessee. I was taking people out to the Cascade Range. I've done near, near a bunch of times, uh, many other, like Mount Hood, Mount Shasta, you know, Mount Adams. I've done Shuxon, Mount Baker. I've done all those peaks up there, and I was guiding on those peaks, taking people from the East Coast. So I would like to get into other kinds of guiding, but uh, it's a lot of work to you know, get the credentials and pay the insurance fees. And So far, I haven't really actively done it. Do you enjoy guiding people? I do, uh, but it's, it also can turn into a big babysitting job. You know, you're dealing with a lot of people that aren't that competent. That's why they have a guide. So then you got to deal with them. But it, is a, it becomes a job. It's not really, you're not on an adventure like yourself. Someone is paying you to get them up something. Or like canyoneering or rock climbing. You know, you can hire a guide to take you up all kinds of things today. Which, speaking of canyoneering, you do a fair amount of that these days, and you do a lot of first descents in um, Death Valley, right? Yeah, Death Valley, and I'm, I'm branching out into other places, too. We did a nice uh, canyon, Granite Creek, up in the Sierras last summer. I still have many canyons to do in the Sierras and many other places besides the Sierras. The first descent, I've, I think I've calculated up on Rope Wiki, just like 440-something canyons in California. I've, I've been in part of 170 of those. I've been on the first descent. I had 170 out of like 440-something. So I've done quite a few first descents in California. And for people who don't understand what a first descent is, first descent means that you're the first person to go through this canyon and document it. Uh, sometimes it may mean you're the very first person to ever go through, but it also may mean you're just the first one to go through, document it, so that when you're going through, you have no information about what to expect ahead, so you have to prepare for the unexpected. A first Ascent Canyon, uh, most of the ones that I've probably done, uh, no one probably has been there, because most canyoneers know that you have to have an anchor. There is a technique called ghosting where you can actually make retrievable anchors and bring up, but very few of these uh, canyons that I've been in, uh, including the guys who did the first ascents, but even before me, some of the other people, uh, they usually always will have anchors built of some form. You'll always find webbing or some kind of anchor material, rock piles, various things, uh, besides bolts and pitons and other things that have been used in the past. Usually you'll find evidence that someone has actually gone in there. Because when you get to a drop, a 300 foot drop, you gotta hook the rope to something. And usually you pull the rope down, you've got to usually leave something. And most big drops in these far unknown canyons, uh, most people aren't getting into the ghosting techniques. They're not going to try to do retrievables on the, some of these really wild canyons. And a lot of these Death Valley canyons that you do, they're, they're a bit rugged even for, by canyoneering terms because you have really long approach hikes, right? And yes. then sometimes you'll have several dozen rappels that you have to rig from scratch. Oh, nearly all, uh, all, of the, every, all the anchors we build from scratch. And Death Valley, you cannot put bolts or pitons in. It's illegal, and they don't like you putting nuts, climbing nuts. They don't want you to leave anything there. So every anchor I've built in Death Valley has been a natural anchor. Usually I would just go in, I used to carry a bolt kit for emergencies, which I just quit taking. I never bothered to put a bolt in, or pitons, or hammer. I just left all that. I just would go in with webbing. 
I would just take a webbing and that was it. So whenever you do some of these first descents in Death Valley and you know that you're maybe going to come across dozens of of drops of which you're going to need to build an anchor for every single one of them, how much gear do you bring the tendon, tend to bring in with you? Uh, usually I will bring just webbing. How and, much? Uh, uh, usually they recommend uh, sometimes up to 200 feet, but very seldom I'll take more than about 100 feet. I'm kind of known I will put very minimal anchors in. I, I have come I did Widowmaker, the second descent on Widowmaker, a 580-foot drop. And we got there, and the first descent party had 200 feet of webbing strung out everywhere. It was like spaghetti. I said, this is ridiculous, having this much webbing. And we put one, moved one rock in place and had like, you know, five feet of webbing for our anchor when we did it. So I've always been a minimalist when it comes to, you know, the very minimal amount of webbing, natural webbing. Instead of having all kinds of garbage, it's just like litter in the canyon. How much rope do you tend to bring with you? Uh, well, it all depends. Uh, if can, many of these canyons, you can't really tell enough on Google Earth images, and you cannot see in the canyon from any direction. You can't look down in. You don't know how long the drops are. And uh, we've done drops. I've done two drops, uh, one 480 and another one 450, over the last two or three years out there that you just came across a wall 480 feet high, and you can't see the bottom. So you really don't know exactly what you're going to get. So you got to make sure you have. There are ways to add ropes together, and there are various kind of advanced techniques of how to get. If you have a drop longer than your longest ropes, you can tie it lower people, and you can do releasing mechanisms. But you have to be prepared to to deal with that. All of a sudden, you there've been people stuck in canyons before when their ropes don't hit the bottom, and they just wait for a rescue. So does that mean you're often carrying a 300-foot rope with you? or Usually all, all first descents, I will take a 300-foot rope, 300, 330. How big it. are your parties usually? Uh, most of the parties uh, that I've gotten Death Valley Canyoneer is usually about four or five people. And I'm and, assuming everyone has a rope and a lot of webbing with them. Uh, yeah, but like we try to divide up the gear. You know, um, it, uh, if I think we're getting a big drop, we'll take the bigger ropes or more ropes. But many times it's just been me and one other person, just the two of us. So sometimes we'll split up sometimes a thousand feet of rope or 900 feet of rope between two people and then have the rope in the ring, the rapides, the rings to wrap off, you know, just. And for people who don't know, rope is heavy. 300, 300 feet of rope is very heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's very heavy. I have a, my 360 foot rope and it's like 14 pounds. And then you've got everything else with you, yeah, too, that's all just your food and water. And you've got to bring a lot of water with water you in Death Valley, Water is a right? huge issue in Death Valley because there is no water. There's only a very few springs. And uh, so, and a few in the wintertime, sometimes some of the potholes will have water in them after the rains, during the rainy season. But water is something that has killed many people in Death Valley. And How much water do you tend to bring with you on these first descents? During the wintertime when it's cooler, I will take uh, on a day trip for the one day, I'll take uh, maybe like three three to four liters. Uh, sometimes we've done three-day trips out there, and we have to have all the water from the beginning. And a lot of times my pack would weigh 65 to 70 pounds. And most of that, a lot of that's water weight. Yeah, it's all you... the ropes, and then you have to have, uh, you know, like two or three gallons of water added to that because you're going in the middle of nowhere for three days, and there is no water back there. Do you tend to do the gallon of water a day rule? That's generally, I would say, a minimum of a gallon of water a day. And I've been very dehydrated many times on these trips, so I know the importance of having, making sure there is no place to get water. 
there is no rescue out there. There's nobody. Do you still go out in the summer there, or do you strictly try to keep it a spring and fall? Uh, and generally, winter? Death Valley, uh, I won't go in the summer, even though I have been out there. I've been out there when it's been over 100 degrees, uh, and I have had some problems you know, with dehydration. I had one water bottle leak in my pack when I depended on it, and, and I was completely dehydrated, and I reached, and the water was gone. <laughs> So you're gambling with when you get well over 100 degree heat and you're in the middle of nowhere. And there is no trails to any of these canyons. And there's no, we have to find an access way up to every one of them. When I started uh, like a year and a half ago, the most comprehensive uh, beta site only had, was showing 29 canyons had been done over the last 20 years in Death Valley. Now there's like 208 canyons. You know, and I've done like 170 canyons. Most of the ones that were done were on Black Mountain and a couple other places where you can do a car shuttle. So you can take a car to the top, you have a leaving car at the bottom, and you take a car to the top, and then you just go downhill only. And then you just get in the second car at the bottom and drive back up. So most, all of those 29 canyons were car shuttles. And nearly all of the canyons that I have done are all hike up from the bottom. And many times, many miles, just to get over to the beginning of the ridge, and then you have to hike up and then come down a canyon. So they're much more difficult canyons, and very few people are repeated any of these canyons because of the intense nature of, of what you have to do to get to do them. Do you leave extra water in the in the shuttle cars? Uh, yeah, we usually. Well, I usually don't shuttle, you know, but I usually always have water in my yeah. car. Base camp, we have a camp set up. And I always make sure I got plenty of water in the car because if you, I've been out there stranded, my battery died, and I didn't have a jump. I couldn't, I was in the middle of nowhere and my bat, I was just sitting there on the ground. Eventually, the next day, somebody came by and gave me a jump. So you always should have water in your car in Death Valley. Do you have any idea what draws you to Death Valley? Because some people see Death Valley and they say, oh, screw that place. There's no water. It's hot. It's a desert. Uh, Why to would me, I, go I, there? I think it's very exciting. And a lot of people love wet canyons, which I do too. Uh, you know, waterfall, waterfall canyons and swimming and, you know, class C and currents add a, a huge dynamic um, appeal to Canyon, but the Death Valley Canyons uh, that I've done, uh, many of them have been incredibly beautiful, and I'm, I'm still very excited to go do dry canyons as well. The canyons are much more difficult as far as the remoteness. Most of the canyons that I've probably done in Death Valley could be many, many years before anyone even goes back and, and repeats them again, you know, so, but they're documented now, so people know, and there's a lot of information available if people want to go, they know what's there. The lengths of the drops, how many, how far away, the mileage of how to get up it, and how to you know, just all that stuff now is documented. Any other sports that you're into or have been into that we haven't covered? Were you were you ever into surfing or any of those other? Oh, I was activities? a big surf kayaker. I was I was whenever the big ocean swells would come in during the storms, I was did a lot of surf kayaking. I, I was actually out in the ocean in South Florida when Hurricane Andrew was coming in that morning. I was in the ocean, the only person in the ocean. And uh, the biggest waves that ever hit southern southern Florida was the uh, the movie The Perfect Storm. There were 100-foot waves out, out in the Atlantic. They were coming, 30-foot waves were coming in on the coast of Palm Beach County where I was, and I was the only person out there surfing. Almost died in them. <laughs> I was into whitewater sports for many years. I ran many Class 5 rivers. So you were you a river kayaker yeah, also? a lot of whitewater kayaking. And still, that's one of the reasons my appeal for Class C canyons. I just like the idea of getting in, um, you know, water flowing and hydraulics and stuff like that. It's, it's just... Kayaking is one of the scariest sports I've ever done. When you're in a Class 5 river, you actually think 
I might not be alive in a few minutes because <laughs> you can get caught in like the keeper potholes in canyoneering, but there's actually keeper holes in rivers that you get in and you cannot, I've been caught in those can, holes and you can't get out. They circulate you. Called being Maytag, you just start, you can't get out of them. Have you been held under? Yes, I have. I was, did solo kayaking. I was on the Penobscot River in Maine. My son and wife were on the shore and I couldn't find a kayaking partner and they were watching me and they were watching me die in a keeper hole. The guy says, make sure you don't hit this hole because you can't get out. You have to have someone with a throw rope that can pull you out. Accidentally, next thing I know is I'm in that hole. And there's logs and debris and stuff is floating in there that can't get washed out. It's just, and I'm in there with the logs and just getting knocked around and completely exhausted myself trying to get out of there. How'd you get out? The way to get down is the current goes down and it comes back up and then the water downstream is coming back into the hole. You have a water coming down. So both directions, this current taking you back into the hole and keeping you there. And I took, I got out of the boat after I knew that I was not getting out and dove down, pulled my life jacket off and dove down to the bottom of the river. When I got down to the bottom, as deep as I could go, I was just going downstream. And if you get below the water, the higher up you get, the water takes you back in the hole. If you get down low, the water will take you out. So you can't actually get out of them, but you have to be you know, really calm and not get panicked because you have to know that you, that's the only way to get out of these keeper holes. But then after, at that point, you're out of the keeper hole, but you're in the river without a boat and without a life vest. Yeah. Were you still in the rapids oh, or were you at no, water then? Well, I knew if I, you stay in a keeper hole, you were probably going to die. So you'd rather be swimming. I, I've swam a lot of class four rivers. We would swim class four rivers without our boats, just, just to run the rapids, it, just with a, a wetsuit and a, a helmet and life jacket on and nothing else. We'd drop into all these class four holes and swim just, just to practice doing whitewater. It's, that's one of the reasons class C canyons and um, it's, it's exciting when you get in some heavy hydraulics. It can, be, it can definitely get your adrenaline up. Maybe, maybe you can combine whitewater kayaking and canyoneering into a new sport <laughs> well there are some kayakers who do some pretty hairy uh, drops you're going over waterfalls and there are guys now dropping ridiculously high waterfalls in kayaks so it's kind of somehow somewhere the line instead of repelling or jumping people are using kayaks and in, in some of the, the rivers have you ever gotten into any aerial type sports actually i did hang gliding in uh, colorado I was hang glider for a while. I was buying a, a hang glider, a used, beat-up hang glider for $50. That'll give you an idea of the quality of it. <laughs> the <laughs> was frame it, was got, it a tarp and bamboo? It was actually, the aluminum tubing had been bent, and it was just completely a death trap. And I crashed it really bad, slammed into a bunch of rocks, and I said, that's it, I, until I can pay $1,500 or $2,000 for a good hang glider. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I still want to get into the sport. I mean, just like now the um, squirrel suit, you know, base jumpers, you know, all the uh, wingsuit flyers. That, to me, that would be right on the top of my list if I had the money to, to do that kind of sport. But that, that's like cave diving used to be. Now that's a very high mortality sport. Oh, yeah. Just about everybody who gets into that sport, the percentage of them who live five, ten years later is very slim. It's amazing, amazing how, how many of them are killed. If it seems like a lot of them continue to push... Yeah, always what they're willing to try. Getting closer and closer to the rock edges and all that, and just one tiny error, and you're, and you're gone in that sport. So it's it's a very high risk sport. But I would I would do it in a second if I had the money. All these sports take a lot of money. Maybe <laughs> you could find someone with a discount 
<laughs> base jumping rig that they'll sell you for fifty dollars, and then you can yeah, go maybe they jump. have a senior discount for the older <laughs> guys. <laughs> At my age, it's um, it's really tough trying to stay up because I still have the will, but your body is like an old car; all the parts start breaking. No matter how hard you try, things just start. Well, it probably doesn't help that you break broke them throughout your life. To well, I know. <laughs> Every single injury in my body, I feel it today. The scar tissue is left behind, residual effects, and you get arthritic conditions will start happening around these, old, these injuries, the scar tissue that's in the joint. So you definitely pay a price from all these injuries. Cause, and you have to maintain your body incredibly well. But I do continuous exercise, but like stretching, all types of things like that can really inhibit injuries if you can keep your body flexible. So I'm having problems now with all kinds of injuries, and it definitely has slowed me down, which much to my... Which I can verify, you are not slow. So that just goes to show how fast you must have been prior. Well, right now I'm in the worst shape of my entire life for the last 50 years, this last year. So you used to be superhuman is what you're saying. Well, I was able to do many, many things. I did a lot of endurance trail running. I used to do the Pikes Peak Marathon every year. I did a lot of ultra distance like uh, cross-country trail running and uh, a lot of long-distance bikes, bicycling, road biking. I did um, a two-day trip in Colorado uh, through the mountains. I did 400 miles in two days and 25,000 vertical feet on a road bike solo and countless mountain bike trips I've done. I used to ride through the desert. Yeah. So I've done a lot of long distance endurance sports. I did inline speed skating. I was uh, the national champion for my age division uh, in, in speed skating, uh, the t one of the top races in the country, uh, an 87 mile race in Georgia. I was seventh place overall among the pros. And when was that? Well, I was 57. All the other guys are under 30. And this 57 year old guy, I got seventh place. My teammate was six. and. The top five guys were all like world record holders. So I was able to maintain a pretty good fitness level up to a fairly old age. Would you have any advice, because I meet people and I see people all the time who are late 30s and their 40s, maybe in their 50s, and they say like, oh, I'd like to get into these things, but I'm too old. I've seen quite a few people that I know personally that uh, were couch potatoes up to that age, and all of a sudden they got hooked on the outdoors and started uh, and be you can instantly turn your life around with a good training program. Uh, it's not, never really too late. Anyone can start a training program and turn their body around with, with the willpower, if they, if, as long as they don't have the injuries or sickness. Many people I've turned on to climbing and kayaking and many other sports, just watching the excitement when all of a sudden they try this stuff and realize that they're, they're doing something as exciting as canyoneering or, or whitewater boating or, or rock climbing. Countless people I've taught how to climb. I've done like uh, routes on El Capitan, two routes I did there. I've done other big alpine walls. We sleep in Port of Ledges. So I've done quite a bit of climbing in my lifetime. So are there any outdoor sports that you look at and you say, that's crazy, I would never do that? I'm not really sure if there's anything. Probably the, the stuff that I might not do, especially now at my age, but I probably wouldn't go uh, bull riding. <laughs> I would when I was young, but today I know those those guys are usually always smashed up. <laughs> uh, but they're they're most all, all kind of outdoor adventure sports. I, I have tried most of them. Because if there is one that you won't do, then it's probably recommended that no one do that sport. <laughs> well, I I would pretty much recommend probably trying all kinds of things because with training, 
uh, even though I didn't do the adequate training. You know, many people go through like canyoneering courses and many other things they learn. I, I kind of learned by the seat of the pants and many things because at the time I was doing this, there was very few people that weren't any courses in many of these sports. Uh, even diving, the very first time I went diving, I had no idea what equalizing meant. And I just kept forcing myself down. I was in a boat, I, my wife was in the boat, and I kept going down. I said, why is this hurting so bad? And I got down to like 30 feet, and all of a sudden this sh sharp pain. I was by myself, and all of a sudden this, my mask is filling up full of warm water. I said, what? I said, that's blood. And I shot to the surface, not knowing about an embolism, how fast I could have died. <laughs> And when I get to the top, I pour the mask off, blood is just pouring all over my whole face and in the water. And I had caused a vacuum in my sinuses and finally the squeeze ruptured the membrane wall inside my sinuses and the whole sinus was just hemorrhaging. And my wife was sure I was dead. I came up with just blood everywhere. <clears throat> That's when I said, I, you, gotta, you gotta know what you're doing. I was just stupid saying I can go through the pain and keep forcing myself down and not equalize. I have no idea how simple it was to equalize the pressure in your, your inner ear and your sinuses. But that's learning the hard way. So you would recommend don't take the Scott Sweeney approach no. and get proper proper education? If you get proper education and you get proper training, uh, many of these sports are actually relatively safe. And, and you're not stupid. Many people do ridiculously. <clears throat> Some of the aerial stuff guys are doing, <clears throat> Every sport's going so extreme today. Guys doing um, triple flips on motorcycles now, and <clears throat> just many of these sports, uh, people can definitely get you know severely injured. But you don't have to do those <clears throat> things. <laughs> no, these are guys on the cutting edge. They want to. They want to be the guys that are setting the the, the standards for the future. In a, in a certain way, a lot of these sports have kind of gotten so safe, and the technology and everything, and the protection's so good yeah. that people have to push it even harder to make it unsafe again. Yeah, you always. But every sport, you start at some level, like rock climbing. You do five, 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 six, five, seven, five, eight, nine. You always want to climb the next level harder. Or like canyoneering, you want to do the really exciting wild canyons that have the danger factor, the R and the X ratings. You always want to keep pushing the limits. Once you've settled in at some level, comfortable level, and you're competent at it, you're not satisfied anymore. So do you have anything in the near future, that any trips you're planning, any goals you've set, anything you're trying to accomplish in the near future? Well, certainly uh, canyoneering has captured my attention quite a bit because I've done countless sports over the past that I never documented. So now I am documenting things, creating, like in Rope Wiki and some of the other beta sites, I'm actually creating... Um, a record of what I've done and it gives beta and information for future people. I would like to continue a lot of that type of stuff maybe around the world. There's countless places that I've been around the world. No one is canyoneering and no one is rock climbing and running rivers. California is saturated with climbers and canyoneers and cavers and divers, surfers, but uh, there's a vast amounts of places in the world that are completely unexplored and that's one of the key things I like is exploration. Anything that's new and different and no one's been there, that's the exciting part to me. Going down a canyon for the first time and not knowing what you're going to get and coming to a huge drop, you know, not knowing there's a, what kind of anchor you got to have, how long your ropes are. Compared to going down a canyon that's been done a hundred times and there's already anchors all set up with chains and you already have the bait ahead of time, that's nowhere near as exciting. So the new stuff is the stuff that really drives me. The exploration is the fun part. And when you scare yourself, many times I have scared myself countless times, thought I was going to die. Those are the ones that you look back were your best trips. 
It's the easy ones, you don't even care about it later. But if you really pushed yourself and tested yourself on the limit, then later those are the ones you cherish. Wow, even though I was very miserable, those are the ones I, I survived. And I look at those with the most memorable uh, enjoyment that I was able to complete it. A lot of times in those situations too is when you learn a lot about yourself, the kind of person you are, how you handle those situations. And if you are the kind of person you hope you are. Yeah, I've, uh, I've actually have done that and I've always prided myself the fact that, like I said, I, I don't, I've never really panicked in, or in a situation that I think that if you panic in a lot of these situations, I would not have been here. I was cave diving solo. I did all my cave diving solo, which is something many people... Not recommended. No, and I've had lights go off. I've had a silting up the caves. I, did, I didn't use a reel. I didn't wasn't using a line from the entrance. I would just dive in. You turn around, it's just silt. You have zero visibility. Many, many things have happened. I've had uh, mal all kinds of malfunctions in equipment. Many things have happened that um, if I panicked, I knew I, I would die. I was caught in a cave upside down. I got down and I, I couldn't back out of the hole. My tanks were hanging and I couldn't get my hand back behind there to get the tanks clear and I'm stuck upside down in a hole knowing I'm running out of air any minute in very deep water. And knew, found out later that other people had died in that exact same spot trying to get the hole got narrower and narrow when you got down finally you can't go any further mm -hmm. you there's a big room below but you, you have to take your tanks off and go in front of you and you can't have your tanks on your back to get through I didn't know that at the time everything I did was exploration so things like that um, I should have been killed I could have easily been killed you should consider writing a biography called Things, The Way Not to Do Things with Scott Sweeney. Well, that's definitely true. I would definitely say the things I've done, many of them would probably be looked back now as the stupid way to do it. It's learning the hard way and, and trying to keep from dying doing these things. So you definitely, if anyone does the proper training and it goes with competent people, is a reasonably prudent person. Uh, all these things are open for just about anybody in the world. You know, just get yourself fit and, and learn the skills and you're good to go. Don't do it the way I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a great way to end it. Okay, great. Is with, uh, is with that little bit of advice. Don't do what Scott Sweeney does. Yeah, but <laughs> the world is open for people, uh, unbelievably exciting adventures in the world that are they're just open to people everywhere now that I just... That's the way I want to live my life. The rest of my life is keep, continue the adventures. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks thank for you, coming Jason. out here Appreciate to Corriganville it. Park with me. All right. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott Sweeney. If you're interested in anything else that he's doing, go take a look at the show notes. I've got a link to his Death Valley Canyons. I've also got a link to more of those Scott Sweeney facts. Some of them are very much inside baseball, nerdy canyoneering jokes. If you're not big into canyoneering, maybe you're not going to get all these jokes, but there are some that are going to be funny regardless. I'm recording this ahead of time, so I'm not sure exactly what's going to be in those show notes other than that. Hopefully there'll be some more links, and hopefully there will be some pictures of Scott in action. Oh, and a quick thank you to any of you who saw Scott last night at Uber Presents. You may remember from episode two, the interview with Klaus Gerhardt, the canyoneering instructor here in Southern California. He holds monthly events for canyoneering. Last night there was an event for Scott Sweeney, 
and his many, many first ascents of Death Valley Canyons. So if you were at that event last night and you're listening to the show for the first time, welcome. I hope you stick around. If for whatever reason you'd like to get in contact with us here at the show, you can email us at go at butcherbirdstudios.com. You can also go to the website, gogetoutside.com. Look at the podcast page. That's where you'll find the show notes. And there's also a videos page. So go check out those videos. If you want to leave us a message, if you want to call us, you can call our Google Voice number 818-925-0106. Be fast. You only have three minutes to leave your message. And I know you all know what time it is now. It's that time where I beg you, go into iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're using. Subscribe, rate, review the show. I know everybody says this and you're thinking, oh, I'm so sick of all these damn podcasters asking me to do these things. I know, I get it, but it really does help out the show. So if you take a moment to write a review, rate us, you'll be my favorite person. Next week should be fun. We've got the first person I interviewed for this podcast. She's a gregarious woman from Australia named Young Long. She's going to talk to us about her three-month trip across the U.S. climbing and dirtbagging. Check in next week. It's going to be a good one. She's funny. And she has a funny accent. If you're Australian, don't write into me. I'm being sarcastic. All right, that's it for the show. See you next week. Right? You're coming back next week? I hope you come back next week.